Well, some weeks ago, I started, actually five weeks ago, I started our annual series of What the World's Coming to, and yet, as I told you then, I'm going to take a very different approach this year than I have in past years. Usually, I focus upon current events that are taking place and how they relate to biblical prophecy of what the end times would be like, and we have no trouble finding very close parallels. But this year, I wanted to talk more specifically about foundational issues, if you will, because... I feel like we are moving into an era where it's critically important for Christians to understand what the foundations of the Christian life are really all about because those foundations are being challenged on just about every arena in which we lived. And so we started the first part talking about what the family is coming to and there's some pretty striking and fearful things, the terrible things that are happening in terms of the direction that the culture is trying to lead the family and how they're trying to not only change it, but really eliminate it as it has been historically understood and as the Bible defines it. But this week we're going to begin the second part of that, and that's what the church is coming to. And we live in an interesting time where the church is intended to be one thing, and yet we find over the centuries it has gone through various uh, metastasizations. And it's really, we find that Satan has a plan of twisting and distorting and changing the very concept of what the church is so that it conforms to something according to his will rather than God's. In fact, one of the things we are told in the book of Revelations that he will create a false church which he will seek to use in replacement of the true church of Jesus Christ. But today I want to talk about what I've titled the, the greatest miracle, and that's because as I look at the church throughout human history, it is the most miraculous thing I think we can point to. The very fact that it exists today at all is something quite miraculous. But we'll get into more detail as we go on. Where I want to begin, though, is talking about Jesus' earthly ministry, that we reckon that it happened or covered about three to three and a half years. And when he did, Jesus traveled extensively with his 12 apostles through the regions of Galilee and Samaria and Judea. The distance between Jerusalem and Capernaum, which was the main route he traveled on, is only about 80 miles or 90 miles. It's not a huge long distance, although he traveled circumspectly through, you know, circuitously through all of these villages and towns and so forth. But it's kind of amazing when you think about it because the, the Jesus and the apostles were really isolated to a relatively small geographical region. That's why when we go to Israel, people are often surprised how quick it is when we travel from site to site because, you know, you go to one site where Jesus did something, get on a bus, travel for 10 minutes, and you're at another site. Well, obviously, it took them longer. They had to walk, and we have to walk from the front of the bus to the back, but the rift difference is really quite significant. You begin to realize that the locality and the closeness of places is something that we're not accustomed to in a country like ours where we have huge distances and spaces between cities and states and various locations. So they really were limited to a very small geographical region, and we also know that they never really went into any Gentile cities. I mean, we have no record of Jesus going to places like Tiberias, which was a fully Gentile city, or even Julius, which was just the other side of Bethsaida. And the one place they came close to was the city of Caesarea Philippi, far to the north. 
In fact, we only have, we have no indication that they actually went into the city because it was a completely Roman, Greek, heathen area. So Jesus told his disciples even to limit their journeys to the lost sheep of Israel. That was their focus with some exceptions. Because we find in the final six months of Jesus' public ministry, following the arrest and the execution of John the Baptist by Herod Antipas, who ruled over the area of Galilee where Jesus' ministry was centered, that Jesus led his disciples out of that area for maybe a period of as much as six months. And it seems that he had a very simple design that he was going to prepare them for what was coming next to prepare them for what in their minds was going to be the end of his ministry. That is, it would lead to his crucifixion and his resurrection. And if you read the Gospels, it becomes very, very clear that when Jesus is crucified, they are completely broken in terms of their hopes and aspirations, that even though Jesus had repeatedly talked about The other side of crucifixion was going to be his resurrection. Like so many things, these were concepts they had no experience with and therefore could not understand them. It's kind of like Paul's exhortation to the churches when he said, when you try to think what heaven's going to be like, you're always going to come up short because he says, eye has never heard, ear has never seen, it has never even entered into the imagination of man what is awaiting us. In other words, we live in this three- or four-dimensional world, depending on how you want to divide it, but when you talk about heaven, you're talking about dimensions of reality that are outside our ability to perceive, and therefore we have no way of even beginning to comprehend what is awaiting us. And he says that in a very exciting and hopeful way, but you have to understand when you're talking about these 12 men in particular and others who are following with Jesus, because at times he had a very large retinue of people that were following along, that when Jesus taught certain things, they sat and scratched their heads and thought, we're not quite sure what he's talking about. But after his resurrection, we read that he ascended to his Father in heaven And he said to them in John 14 that I'm going to do this, that I might go and prepare a place for you. And when it's time for your life to end, I'm going to come and take you to be where I am. Which is really a wonderful thought because we don't die. We just get taken to where Jesus has prepared a place for us. And sometimes I wish that Jesus would come sooner. And at the same time, I think the longer he takes to prepare my place, the better it looks. So, you know... (laughs) Come quickly, Lord Jesus, but not too quickly. I want you to finish that last wing before you take me to heaven. Again, using it in terms of mansions and heaven is certainly a thought that people had when they lived in hovels, the idea that heaven would be mansions and streets were gold. But the reality is these are pictures that are designed to tell us they are something of great glory but cannot really be comprehended by man. We just don't know. All I know about heaven is when I get there, it's going to be really, 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 really good. Barring from Zoolander. But in the interim, after Jesus had risen, there was a period of about 40 days where Jesus said, I want you to go and wait in Jerusalem until the Parakletos comes 
What is the parakletos? The parakletos, it's a word that means your companion, your comforter, your counselor, but it's referring specifically to the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you'll hear people call it the paraclete, which is kind of an anglicized of the original word. But John said these wonderful things in John, or Jesus said in John 14 about the paraclete when he comes. He says, he will be with you forever. So that once the Holy Spirit is living inside of you, he's, he's there forever. You know, some people think the Holy Spirit comes in and out of him, in and out of him, in and out. You know, it's kind of like a yo-yo. <laughs> good, bad, good, bad, good, bad. If that were the case, he'd just stay out of me. But he's with you forever, and he says he will teach you all things, so that learning the ways of God is primarily a spiritual experience and not simply an intellectual one. And he will remind you of everything, which at my age is very helpful because I tend to forget a lot more than I remember. And then he goes on and says, and he will testify of me. His work is always evidenced by he points to himself. The Holy Spirit will always point you to Jesus. He will never point you to an individual and say, isn't he special? No, he will point you to Jesus and remind you, he says, and, and last of all, he said in Luke 24, he will clothe you with power from on high. So on that very first Sunday evening after his resurrection, we read that Jesus appeared to them in the upper room and there it tells us in John 20 that he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. I believe that's when they were born again. But on the day of Pentecost, 40 days later, they had this second experience, which Jesus, in fact, used the term the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the word baptism there means to be basically not only overwhelmed, but marinated within it. In fact, we have an ancient recipe from a Greek writer by the name of Nicanor where he talks about how to make pickles. And he says, you take the pickle first and you bapto it in hot water and then you put it into a container of vinegar and salt and close it and leave it there and let it baptizo. And that idea of baptizo is where we get our word baptism. It sits there and begins to absorb the vinegar and the salt and it's permeating the entire being. He says, what I'm going to do is basically turn you into a spiritual pickle. I'm going to pickle you in the Holy Spirit. And what's going to happen is that there is a power that is going to emanate itself from your life that is unprecedented. Your old men will see dreams. Your young men will prophesy. He talks about this, this change, this transformational effect. And that's one of the exciting things when you move from the Gospels into the book of Acts. It's almost like the 12 guys you read about in the book of Acts or the Gospels are now 11 guys who are completely different in almost every way. And what do we assign that difference to? The presence of the power of the Holy Spirit working in them and working through them. This power was given to them to equip them so that they could do the work of, the, of, the Holy, of God on the earth. That at, at the receiving Christ, being born again is the act of being saved, but the back of the empowering was to equip them to fulfill the works they were called to do. And in it, really kind of giving the various kinds of gifts the diversity of gifts that exist within the body of Christ. 
Later on, we'll see, and we'll get into that more when Paul talks about we're all different members of the body of Christ, and each of us has a different calling and gifting and empowering that therefore we make up the body. And Paul makes the argument, you don't look at one part of your body and say it's more significant than the other. I mean, you know, I was thinking, somebody was asking the question, what would, how, how many fingers would you give up for a million dollars? And I'm thinking to myself, I'm not giving up any. I need all of them to steal that million dollars from your hand. The point is that you don't want to give up anything because it's part of your body. And that connection is an essential part of who we are as individuals. And Jesus was saying, this thing is going to be like my body. An interesting thing, he talks about the church being his body. Well, so when we hear the word church, as Jesus introduced it in Matthew 6, keep in mind chronologically, this is six months before he is crucified and resurrected. And keep in mind that he is introducing a term to them that is completely new. It's not like he said, I'm going to build my church upon this foundation. They're going, oh yes, church. For us, that's the reaction. When we hear the word church, what do we think? We think of a, a, a building that is used for public Christian worship. Or we think of an organization that calls itself a church or a religious institution or a denomination or a particular kind of building that has a steeple just like ours. You look at our church from the outside, we look like a typical church. Oh, no, actually, we look like a typical shopping center. But nonetheless, you get the point. And that is not necessarily by accident. There's a kind of intentionality to that because the church was never about the place where the people met. But when these people heard the word church, they didn't know exactly what Jesus meant because there were no churches. There were synagogues, there were temples, there were pagan shrines. But what Jesus was describing is something that was non-existent and also non-material. It wasn't made of brick and mortar. It was a spiritual entity that was composed of people, not buildings. And not ordinary people, but people who had been saved, people who had become part of the kingdom of God. They had been born again. They had been filled with the Spirit, and their lives were controlled by that same Spirit. The later New Testament writers referred to it, as Paul did, as the body of Christ. Because Christians were meant to be a visible embodiment of the invisible church. So that we find that the language of the New Testament is always talking about a community of people who are called the church. Now, it's not hard to imagine how confusing this must have sounded for the apostles, especially when Jesus added, on this rock I will build my church. The Greek word for church is ecclesia, and literally it means a, a citizen assembly. And so this was a common Greek word, but some scholars, and I think have a lot of support for it, say that Jesus was not speaking in Greek when he talked to them. He was speaking in Aramaic, which was the common language, and it would have been the word idutha. And idutha means a witness. Upon this witness... I will build my people. What witness? Well, in John 13, 35, he says, By this, 
All men will know you're my disciples. By what? By your sacrificial, loving, selfless way of living within community. By the love that you have one for another, which sounds really kind of easy until you put it into practice. You know, I mean, I look around a room like this and I don't see an homogenous group of people. I see people of different ages, different backgrounds, different educations, different socioeconomic situations. I see some who came a short distance, some who came a long distance, and you realize that in many ways, we're very different people that would not be here at this moment if it were not for Jesus. We just simply wouldn't do this, especially on a day where I lost an hour's sleep. I wouldn't do this. So what is the attractant? What is the thing that causes us to seek this kind of a gathering, this kind of community? And the answer is always the unity that we have around the person of Jesus Christ and his lordship. So Jesus said it's going to be people who, by their very existence, are going to live as a witness of how much I love them because they have been freed from the typical Hanger and hatred and bigotry and prejudice and bias and all this kind of thing that marks human society, has marks of human society since the very earliest days. It wasn't something that just became systemic in our day and age. It's been systemic in this world of sin since the very beginning. As soon as the first time Adam and Eve enjoyed apple pie, it all began to go downhill. And he said, yet I'm going to bring my spirit into the human experience in such a way so unique and so unusual that somehow the unpassable barriers will evaporate and become insignificant and my people will begin to find an ability to love and to serve and to sacrifice for one another. Now granted, that is a learning process, right? Sometimes we have trouble doing it just with our spouse. But that also is one of the key areas of growing and learning in the Christian life. It's not just simply, I married the right right person or the wrong person, but rather it's God saying, I put you in life together with this person primarily so that you could learn to love one another as I have loved you. And you are in this community of believers right now for that very purpose again, that we might learn how to love each other because every one of us has that same desire. We want to be fully known and fully loved and we live in fear that if people fully know who we are, they will not even begin to love us. And yet there's something profound that when we can totally know people, know everything about them and yet we still are committed to loving them, then Christ has been magnified in our midst. So that Jesus would simply say in Matthew 18, when two or three gather together in my name, that is literally under the the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ, that's what my name implies, when two or three come together in this mutual submission to him as their Lord, Savior, and Master, he says, I am there in their midst. His presence becomes visible. So oftentimes people saying, why should you bother to go to church? I like to go out into nature and just experience God. Well, I'm not saying you can't go into nature and experience God, especially if you go out in the middle of winter and you're totally naked, you'll experience God probably in about 40 minutes. Um, 
you know, it's kind of like a young man I was talking to in Russia who said, uh, you know, Yuri Gagarin went into outer space and he looked out the capsule. He said he looked and he didn't see God anywhere. And I, I respond by saying if Yuri Gagarin had stepped out of the capsule, he would have seen God immediately. But what we're talking about is not just the sudden facing God mono e mono in eternity because I am passed from the physical dimensions of time, space, and matter. But I'm talking about the fact that when we come together, there is a moving of the Holy Spirit within our midst that begins to have an impact and a change that we go away from a time like this and say, surely God was there. Paul even wrote to the church of Corinth and he said, you know, that when you come together, the unbeliever will walk in and say, God of a truth is in your midst. And that's really what we pray for. That's what we yearn for. Not simply that we have great music, we have great preaching, uh, we have great food at breakfast, and, and, and who can overlook those 40,000 donuts we gave out last year? Yeah, it's just part of the budget. <laughs> but there, there is something else besides that. There's this sense that we have been with God's people and, and God was in our midst. That's what we should be looking for. That's what you'd be seeking and yearning after is that we have an encounter with God. I remember a TV interview one time years ago and had a lady from the news station ask me, so why do people come to your church? And I said, I, I hope it's to find God because if they're coming to listen to me, what a disappointment that's going to be. I got nothing to give them, but God has the answers for everything. I think when the disciples first heard this, it's so likely that they responded just as they had eight times before when they didn't understand what Jesus was saying. Luke puts it very graphically in verse eight, chapter 18, verse 34. He said, they did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. They did not know not know what he was talking about. <laughs> Every time they, they wouldn't even ask him a question because they didn't want him to know how, how dense they were, even though I find that he kind of, as God, already knew how dense they were, which has given me a lot of relief in my life. But part of their problem was, like so many other things, they couldn't comprehend it intellectually. They couldn't make sense of it within the experience of their life. And that's what we tend to do. We take our past experiences and then we measure new experiences. And if new experiences fit into the fabric of a past experience, we say, oh, I know what's going on. But when we experience something that's completely outside the realm of anything we know or understand, like when I'm trying to play Roblox with my six-year-old grandson, I you know, just go, I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense to me. It was something that had to be divinely revealed, and it still has to be. Importantly, the foundation upon the church was to be built was not Peter, as one church claims, but rather it's very obviously on what Peter confessed, and we'll break that down a little bit more in a moment, but the confession of Peter, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, that's the foundation upon which the church is built. And you cannot be part of the church if that confession is not already written in your own heart and mind, that he is the Christ, he is the son of the living God. That's why Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. Now, 
The reason why I say it wasn't Peter is because in the Greek, there really is a play on words. He, he says to him, you are Peter, or literally Petros, which means a pebble. On this rock, Petra, which means a massive, immovable rock. Some have likened it to the rock of Gibraltar. And if you don't know what the rock of Gibraltar is, you can look at the picture. That is the rock of Gibraltar. It's at the very tip of Europe, which leads out, you know, one way takes you to the Mediterranean, the other one takes you out into the Atlantic, and this beautiful rock there, and uh, I'd really like to stay in that hotel sometime. Anyway, but, <coughs> but that's the difference. It's, a, it's such a significance. The rock that he's talking about is something that you can found your life upon, you can build upon. You can't build upon a pebble like Peter. And this is clearly how the early church understood it. Because Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.11, he says, for, there is no, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one which has already been laid, which is Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 10.1, he says, our fathers, they drank from the same spiritual rock, the same spiritual Petra, massive rock, that accompanied them, and that rock, that Petra, was Christ. In Ephesians 2.20, Paul went on to say, Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, the chief rock. No one within the first three or four centuries of the church ever thought it was referring to Peter, at least until the bishop of Rome in the fourth century asserted that Peter was in fact the rock and the church was built upon him and and of course, he was Peter's successor, so everybody needed to turn to him. Peter never made any such assertion. There's no indication in the scriptures. It's an impossible doctrine to, to support biblically. You have to rely upon extra-biblical sources, which is tradition. And so the very people who claim to be Peter's successors are the ones who also say, quote themselves, proving it. So although the 12 really didn't understand what this church thing meant, each wanted to be one, the one who was in charge of it and to control and possess it when it came to power. And this is evident by the continuous bickering that went on between his apostles before their conversion. Now, ultimately, this would lead to divisions and strife, and we'll talk more in the future about the history of the divisions and strife in the church. I mean, there's at least 30 or 40 different heresies that the church has contended from the very beginning up into the present. But eventually it led to the great schism of 1054 where the Eastern and Western church broke into two parts, the Orthodox church on the one side, the Roman Catholic church on the other. And then came another split with the Catholic church with the Protestant Reformation in 1530. And today we have mainline denominations which are further splitting as they move away from the Bible and begin to become more embracing of the cultural moment that we happen to be in. And it all comes from the same psychological source which Jesus talked about in Luke twenty-two twenty-four, that he says that, and this is always so timely, as Jesus has just finished the, in the upper room and they're leaving the upper room and they're walking towards the, the Kidron Valley in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
where Jesus is about to be arrested. He told him he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be turned over to the Romans. He's going to be crucified. But he says, by the way, on the third day, I'll rise. As they're having this whole conversation and they're leaving, what do you think they're talking about? <laughs> it's kind of shocking. Luke says they were bickering over which of them should be considered to be the greatest. The word philonikos, I mean, it's, nikos was the, the, the Greek god of victory. And it's called a love of victory, a love of being on top, a love of being in conquest, a love in being able to have, live in that house and wear a red hat. It's a love of being in charge and being in control. I love why Chuck Swindoll talked about the beginning of that feast where Jesus, you know, bowed down and washed his disciples' feet. I love this line. He said, those disciples were willing to fight for a throne, but not a towel. They were willing to fight for a throne, but they didn't want to touch a towel. And I would say this continues to be the real heart of the problem, even to the present of course, all of that changed in these men, as I said before, when they were born again and they became empowered by the Holy Spirit because at that moment, the whole focus of their life became about building Jesus' kingdom and his church. They forgot about their own ambitions and began to align their ambitions with his, where he said in, in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven Hallowed, in other words, be exalted, magnified, lifted up, be your name, not mine. This especially became true when they began to take the message into the world and they found that taking up your cross and following me was something that became very, very literal. Because within two days, all two, excuse me, two decades, all of them, except for the apostle John, who went through an unsuccessful martyrdom, so they banished him to the Isle of Patmos. They dipped him in a, boil, a pot of boiling oil head first, and it didn't take. And so they sent him off into imprisonment, but all the rest of them died martyrs' deaths. And yet, ironically, amazingly really, the more they suffered, the more the church flourished. For the next 200 years, countless thousands of Christians, especially those who were in leadership in the church, were imprisoned, they were tortured, they were burned at the stake, they were crucified, they were eaten by lions, they were stabbed with spears and swords, they were stoned to death, they were skinned alive, all in an effort, in a very successful one, to terrify their followers to give up the faith. And unfortunately, some of them did. Because when Christianity became legal, the first big issue the bishops wrestled with is, what do we do with the people who fell away from the faith in order to preserve their lives? Should we let them come back into the church? Well, they actually allowed them to come back. But I love Eusebius' description of that first gathering. When, when Constantine, the first Christian emperor, calls together the Council of Nicaea to get the churches to work out some doctrinal things, and he describes these bishops who are coming. And he said they're limping, they have limbs missing, hands gone, arms cut off, eyes gouged out. He said they're just basically a physical wreck because they had endured such hardships 
And these are the ones who actually survived after years of imprisonment. And they came together and decided, what do we do about the brothers and sisters who ran away from the faith when it became difficult? And this is where the amazing ministry of mercy and grace manifests itself. And they decided we should just forgive them. As I said, some did fall away, but at the same time, others who were watching their struggle and their sacrifice and even their deaths chose to follow the Jesus that these men preached. You see, at Paul's death in 66 AD, there's estimated there were probably around 10,000 Christians in the entire world. 250 years later, after the conversion of Emperor Constantine, there were counted 35 million believers, half the Roman Empire. And today, we have around 2 billion people who at least identify as Christians, the largest and fastest growing religious movement in the world. Contrary to some commentaries, I mean, Islam is not the fastest. Hinduism certainly isn't the fastest. The largest and fastest growing religious movement in the world is Christianity. And it's growing in places that we would not expect it. And that's why I call the church the greatest miracle. It's a movement that was birthed in obscurity in the little backwater of the vast Roman Empire, viciously persecuted, severely underfunded, basically vilified by everyone, everywhere. And the very fact that it survived. I mean, we might expect that we'd find little pockets of Christians in really far-flung places where they were able to survive and hide away from persecution. But yet it grew to be the most numerous faith in the world. And I often think what the disciples must have thought when Jesus was saying things like, he goes in Mark, he says, when you take this gospel to all the world, or he said to Matthew, when make disciples of all nations. Keep in mind, these guys had never traveled more than a couple hundred miles in any direction. Or when he tells them in Acts chapter 8, after they've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, take this message to the ends of the earth. I wonder if they were sitting there going, does he mean that literally? <laughs> or is he just being figurative? <laughs> is he kind of expanding the idea? Or does he literally mean that, that we're going to take this to the end of the earth? You see, the problem was they took it literally and they did it. See, every place the church traveled, intense persecution followed. And the cost has been high. Christian historians estimate that over the last 2,000 years of church history, there have been some 70 million Christians who have been martyred for their faith. And the highest number has come in the 20th century and now into the 21st century. That every year today, there are 100,000 Christians who loses their life because of their faith in Christ. 10 people a day die because they will not renounce their faith in Christ. Which is what makes the promise of Jesus that the gates of hell will never overcome it so significant. Again, Jesus was using metaphorical language when he talked about rocks. 
He was using a comparative metaphor of pebbles and large uh, foundation stones. And when he talked about the gates of hell, he was using metaphors that his audience would have easily understood. You see, gates were the most important, the most durable part of any city wall. He's not talking about some flimsy garden gate. He's talking about these massive walls and structures that were built. Because you see, when you have a gate, it's an opening into the city. So how do you protect your city from being invaded? You make it the most robust fortress that you can possibly imagine. Most of them in the ancient world were built in what we call the triple gate. We see them in Israel all the time, where if you get through one place, you have to get through another, and you have to get to another before you ever get an entrance into the city, all the while dealing with people who are throwing spears, arrows, and boiling oil on your head. So it wasn't really a good day when you were told to break through the walls of a city or the break through the gates of the city. But it was also the place, because it was such a significant structure, that the kings and the judges would literally go there to hold court, to dispute issues and make judgments. It was viewed as being the place of powerful. Not only the most physically powerful place, but the place where people of power rested. And so when Jesus talks about the gates of hell, he's talking about all of the power of Satan and his devils. He said, no matter what Satan will throw against the church, it will never prevail. It will never overcome. And that's where the word Hades comes in, or Hades ties in as well. Hades was a Greek god of the underworld, the netherworld. But it was also came to mean the place where the demons and the unsaved dead went to suffer. When we read in Revelation 9 that out of the bottomless pit comes this angel, Abaddon, which is, literally means destruction, but he's known by the Greek word Apollyon, the destroyer. That there is this demonic font that pushes forth demons into the world which have only one agenda, and that is to destroy as much as they can. They want to destroy you, they want to destroy me, they want to destroy the church, they want to destroy anything that's good, they want to destroy any nation that might be founded upon God, they really want to destroy that, Christ it, corrupt it, make it worship other gods, demons. They have no, no restraint, they are simply given to destruction. In short, Jesus says, even though Satan will throw everything he has at destroying the church, it won't succeed. Evil powers will never prevail over his church because the church is two things. It's eternal and it's indestructible. And if you are saved, you are eternally in her and you are eternally indestructible. As Jesus promised in John 10, 28, he says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand and my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my father's hands. So people sometimes say, do you feel that you're eternally secure? No, but Jesus does. <laughs> I'm going with Jesus. What I see in myself as a failed human 
who struggles with sin on a regular basis. I kind of tell people, if I'm sucking air, I'm probably sinning many times in ways that I don't even recognize. I never come to the end of the day and say, Lord, that was a great one. I didn't sin once. Just simply because I don't want that kind of conversation. I'll be up all night being reminded of, remember when you did this, you thought that, you said this, you... I just don't have time for that. I just want to know that I'm forgiven. This fact ironically presents two great ironies. I'm using that word iron, ironic a lot, aren't I? The first great honor, irony is that when the church is at its weakest, it is also at its strongest and many times ends up growing the fastest. I mean, think about where you're at when you feel the weakest. I've done everything I can. I've thrown every resource I can. I've used every argument. I've, used, I've tried everything and nothing has worked. I think I'm going to pray. And to learn to be able to pray first before you waste all your resources is probably the easier way to go. But there's nothing that admits your powerlessness, your weakness more than your praying. That when you and I pray, we're immediately saying to God, this is beyond me. This is more than I can deal with. I, I have nothing to throw against this. I realize that my enemy is not just people, places, and things. It's not politicians. It's not leaders. It's not any of those kind of things <laughs> that I think about. My enemy is this spiritual entity that is seeking to destroy and he has more power than I can even begin to think or imagine. So I throw myself at the feet of God and say, God, have mercy upon me. And God, I pray that you would change this. I pray that you would drive back the evil one, that you would bring deliverance. You'd bring healing. You'd bring restoration, God, because I can't. I can't talk anybody into the kingdom of God. I can't say anything from this position to make anybody want to hear anything I say. That if God doesn't speak, we're all wasting our time. And the more we recognize that, the more we become prophets. Because what we're speaking is not so much our words as we're speaking His. We're not what we're ventilating our heart or our emotions. We're revealing His. And that has power. That has impact. I mean, despite the fact that 11 Roman emperors over 200 years did everything they could to eliminate Christianity, despite the fact that the membership of this group they wanted to destroy was composed of, well, how did Paul describe us? Not many wise, not many influential, not many of noble birth. God, in fact, chose the foolish, the weak things, to shame the wise and the strong. When it says that the eyes of the Lord are going to and fro across the face of the earth, looking for a man or a woman who is loyal to him, you know, you know what loyal to him is? The weak, the small, the cognitively limited, the inexperienced. That's what God's looking for, or in short, you and me. Within a decade, the church grew exponentially, spreading from Persia to India to Rome to Spain to Britain. And the point is simply this, buildings can be burned 
And people can be enslaved and even murdered. They can be imprisoned. They can be tortured. But the blood of the martyrs has a mysterious way of outlasting and extinguishing every flame that comes from hell. As the early church father Tertullian put it, the blood of the martyrs is the seeds of the church. You see, history confirms that every time the church has faced intense persecution, it has grown. Despite the efforts of, say, men like Voltaire, who was really the philosophical father of the French Revolution, which most people don't realize, the French Revolution was decidedly anti-Christian. In fact, uh, Voltaire wrote in, in 1764, he said, Christianity is the most ridiculous, the most absurd, and the bloody religion that can ever be ever infected the world. A hundred years from my death, the Bible will be a museum piece. <clears throat> Today, his home is a museum. But it was the 16th century former Theodore Beza who once wrote, he said, The church is an anvil which has worn out many hammers. Our opponents may boast of their strength, but they do not realize what they have challenged. You see, today, despite the such efforts, again, over one-third of the world population, at least in name, identifies Christians. But what is really even more notable, even as Christianity appears to be fading in the West, as we describe our cultural changes as being the post-Christian era, the church is growing exponentially in the rest of the world. Africa in 1900 had 1% of the population were Christians. Today it's 50. The fastest growing church in the world is in Africa. Asia, which had less than 1%, now has at least 15%. In China alone, there are over 100 million believers and growing. In fact, the World Christian Encyclopedia says that the statistical center of gravity of the Christian Christianity continues to move east because of the rapid growth of the church in China where Christians number more than 100 million. Why is that, we might wonder? Well, historian Andrew Wells explains it. He said, Christianity is always migrating away from the place of power and wealth and moves, moves where people are poor, powerless, and without hope. There's a certain vulnerability, a fragility at the very heart of Christianity. It's the vulnerability of the cross that attracts desperate people. Which leads me really to the second great irony of the church. The church's greatest threat is not from without, but it's always been from within. The gates of Hades may never prevail against the church, but even Jesus frequently warned about the false prophets, the false teachers, the false apostles. Paul, in writing near the end of his life, said, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. And even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. 
Peter would likewise write. He says, there were false teachers among you, and they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, false teachings, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. (laughs) You know, kind of the Jesus that's a good man theology. And the effect, Timothy, Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, he says, the Spirit expressly says in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. We are seeing doctrines of demons on full display in our culture today. So that although many predict that there's going to be one great revival, and I hope they're right, that before the Lord returns, there's going to be one last awakening or ingathering. Scripture does not clearly state that. It doesn't really say that clearly. It's more of something that people feel is inferred or implied. What it does say in 2 Timothy 4 is the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. I think the case in point is that the largest church in America today, 24,000, 27,000 people every Sunday morning show up for church. It's broadcast around the world to over 2 million people every Sunday morning is a church that doesn't teach the Bible at all. It teaches positive mental attitude. It teaches how to be successful, how to win at life. It talks basically, its major theme is how to find your best life now. I think John MacArthur's response to that mantra was, if this is your best life now, you're going to hell. (laughs) You see, what we are called to do is, as Paul told Titus, In both chapter 1 and again in chapter 2, he says, In accordance with the teaching, exhort in sound doctrine, refute those who contradict, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. I think that you have to be really careful. I'm, I'm pretty digitally connected, you know, to the world like you are, and I get all sorts of interesting posts. I get all sorts of interesting recommendations. I listen to different things that people are communicating. Even some very, very popular Christian movie series. My wife says, you are the worst person in the world to watch this with. Um, I won't go into my lengthy critique of the things. They didn't have candles, for example. I mean, uh, they used lamps. You didn't find pigs in a Jewish community. A number of things I find difficult. I think that whenever you find that things are fictionalized to make things more human, you're running risks. Because it tells me very clearly that I'm not supposed to mess with the Word of God. A friend of mine who was saying, so what do you think? I said, well, to be honest, I like the book better. (laughs) I'm not saying thou shalt not. I'm just saying that we have to be discerning people in these last days. Is that what Scripture says? If it isn't, then we need to move on. 
We'll continue tomorrow. I mean Sunday. Next Sunday. Unless you guys want to come back tomorrow. We can have a snow day. Anyway, I better quit.